I trust you can handle this contraption, Q. It goes by hot air. Oh, then you can. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Spoken Not Stirred, a James Bond podcast. I'm Harrison and I'm here with Daniel. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Daniel. Very excited today because we are discussing our very first film, Octopussy. Yes, Octopussy, Octopussy. Octopussy, as, <laughs> as said by Louis Jordan's character of Kamal Khan. Kamal Khan, indeed. Should we start with the title? What are your thoughts? It is a Fleming... Fleming it certainly story. is. Well, indeed, in the documentary, of course, they, they raised the uh, controversy of using the title. And, and uh, Maud Adams says, you know, you cannot be serious. Are you serious? And they said, yes, we are. And then she said when she saw it was actually an Ian Fleming title, she said, well, OK, then. And um, But it did cause some amusement. And they, they were concerned whether the censor would actually allow it, uh, which is a bit strange, really. Do you think nowadays they'd be the same... The same furore over using Octopussy as a title. Was it, now it seems like, you know, it doesn't seem that surprising. It doesn't, think, doesn't really stand out as such a strange title for a Bond film. I, I don't think at all. I don't think they'd be, we're in a very different time today. Um, I think that would be the least of their concerns, the title. Okay, because you know, the question is, what, what would this movie be called if not Octopussy? I think, they, you know, they would have had to have called it Property of a Lady, which is... Which, yeah. they, which they could have done. I mean, look, the fact is, as we know with many Bond films, you know, they very loosely, if any, follow any of the Ian Fleming books anyway, and therefore yeah. does it really matter what the title is? I mean, they like to link it to, uh, to a book of, uh, to give it some sort of um, connection with Ian Fleming, but it's not essential, as indeed we've found. So, who knows? Have you read the short story collection here? I mean, I'm not expecting you to have read it, but... <laughs> I've perused it. I haven't given it... A but the fact is, it's a very different... In this it, case, it is. it is completely different. When we're getting to the, the Roger Moore era of films, they are very, very distant from the originals. Um, you know, some of the earlier Sean Connery ones um, were clearly much closer to source material in, the, in, in that sense. But now we've gone into very much more moulded towards the film era and the Roger Moore era in particular. Mm. I think what's great about this film is they've taken a kernel of an idea from a Fleming short story that, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to incorporate some, some aspects of Fleming here. They're, they're working with a, a short, one short story that's called Octopussy, which is basically about James Bond going out to find this, um, this major Dexter Smythe who had committed this atrocity during the war. He'd, um, he basically killed, murdered, someone who happened to be close to James Bond, Oberhauser, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that in the Spectre episode, whenever we get to that. But it, it comes up in this film, but it's, you know, so it kind of, it, it only is brought up to sort of give some background to the character of Octopussy. Uh, I think really the, what, the, what to use to better effect in this film is the whole scene around the auction with the Fabergé egg. That all comes from a story called mm. The Pro Property of a Lady. And I actually think that's a really good example where they've taken something from Fleming and actually been able to incorporate it very successfully um, in build build up something that resembles Fleming. And I think what's great about this film is they brought in a um, um, George MacDonald Frazier. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I'm not overly familiar. But I think all the parts of this movie that look a bit like Indiana Jones-like mm. or you know, the exoticism, 
I think that that's that's where you can sort of notice the impact that he's had. Well, he wrote the Flashman. Uh, he wrote the Flashman, Flashman novels, novels. indeed. In that in that sense, it's interesting to talk about property of a lady, as you as you say quite rightly. It's a an Ian Fleming short story, and they actually reference in the film the property of a lady, and they show a, a so a section of property of a lady. Now I, I haven't been nerdy enough to check yeah. whether it's actually the story from the, no no or, or no. I've used I haven't read I, what I've, the words are. I, I've looked at it actually. So so you're referring to the scene where. They introduce the Fabergé egg and it's being auctioned at Sotheby's uh, and they show the kind of this, the, the book gets open. Annoyingly, there's a t piece of tissue around it because it actually, if you look at it, if you pause and you actually read, it gives you like a very full description of the egg. But actually, the description is different to that in the short story, which also gives a description, a shorter one, actually. <laughs> but but I, I, I actually, I mention it because I actually think that a whole sequence, I really like it. I, I think Roger Moore looks fantastic. I, and I, and I, I like the way that Louis Jordan is sat there looking a little bit smug. And then, you know, Roger Moore is trying to sort of sniff out who the villain is. Mm. And, and that is also um, in the short story where actually in that case, they're trying to sniff out who, who's going to be buying the egg. And it's sort of very, there's a lot of subtlety, a lot of cloak and dagger stuff going on in the background. And eventually they find out it's the resident director or someone who works in, in the Russian embassy. And then, of course, they have him ex, ex, expelled from the country as a mm. result of that, because they're using the proceeds of the sale to pay off a double agent who's working in MI6. So it's uh, it's a different background. But I, mm. I like the, what, the one thing I found quite difficult about this film is the plot is a little bit confusing because there are two villains. And well, it's not only clear. Two? Only two villains. There are two. Well, it depends. Look, initially we're let. We initially, I mean, we've seen this movie quite so many times. We don't, we don't consider Octopussy to be a villain, and and I'm discounting henchmen, obviously. Yeah. Well. Well. Indeed. Because and it's also henchmen. It's not so straightforward. You know. I was thinking, who is the villain? Is it Kamal Khan? Is it Octopussy? Is it General Orlov? Right. Those are your three main big mm -hmm. big. Mm -hmm. And then you've got your sort of subdivision. Of of villains, you've got the the two twins Mishka and Grishka. Mm -hmm. You know they're ones, and you've got uh, uh, Gabinda. Gabinda, you know, yeah. Uh, Who is a uh, he's a kind of like odd job type character. Although I think what's great is they do give him a couple lines of dialogue, so yeah. he's not. Um, yeah, in, in that sense, and that, and then and then the issue is where does Magda fit into all of this? I mean, she she's sort of like working. Who's she working for? Is she working for Octopussy? Is she working for Kamal Khan? You know, and we'll come to this, I'm sure, when we go through it in a bit more detail. But I think, you know, one of my instant thoughts on this film, um, having watched it, uh, you know, is it's very much it's it's not so easy to identify. If you put if you look deeply into it, it's very difficult to identify. There's no clarity of of where the plot is going or who is the main baddie, who is it's not in the same way as, you know, a Goldfinger film where you know who the baddie is. Right from the outset, you know... But it's interesting you mentioned Goldfinger because Goldfinger has Pussy Galore and I see Octopussy as very much a kind of uh, reimagined Pussy Galore. And Pussy Galore, of course, in Goldfinger appears to be a villain for most of the film mm. and then turns at the very end. So I, this, this is, I, I felt this is a kind of a similar yeah, idea. May, maybe. I, I, I think her role is, is very unclear. As you say, the, the description you gave in the property of the and talking about the, the father is, is the key feature and now they've, they've actually only slightly reference the father in the fact that James Bond gave him honour by allowing him to commit suicide and that's why she's thanks Bond in this way that she didn't let him be disgraced in that manner but that's the only sort of sort of link I found another another reference point which is this is just how I watch the film but in the gambling scene you have this a major who, who's in, who's credited mm. as Major Clive but he actually doesn't have a name so we have Dexter Smythe mm. who is the father of Octopus he's a different character altogether but he's 
And then you have the major character who's also a major, just called Major. And Bond actually comes in and actually saves this, helps this major actually get over the embarrassment of losing to Kamal Khan. Because Kamal Khan, of course, is cheating with the loaded dice. Mm. And actually, Roger Moore is, James Bond is coming there and he's actually, you know, the major is quite, you know, quite pleased to get out with, without losing the embarrassment. So I sort of see that in a kind of similar way, although it's completely different. Mm. Yeah, that, but that, that's a bit of a stretch. It, it, it is just a, just a, t- a bit. But uh, no, I think it's, um, it, it is, you know, if you pay close attention or try to go through, there are, there are many potential difficulties in plot but i think you have mm. to look at the film in its whole and, and i think we should begin with the with the film or our, our over overview of the film as we see it as a whole and go yeah. through it in detail um so the title uh, sequence would be a, yeah sorry, the, pre, the pre-title, pre-title sequence would be... well of course the interesting thing about it, it has absolutely nothing to do it has with the nothing fi- to do with the nothing film. to do with the film and you you know you, you look at it and i was watching it again and it's quite it's sort of entertaining but my thinking well, what's going on what's this got to do with anything mm. you know it's got absolutely nothing at all to do it it's just a showcase for this contrived almost contrived scene for for roger moore to be set up to you know, impersonate this this general or whatever it was, whoever he is, uh, and uh, you know gets caught, and uh, then for him to get you know rescued by the uh, one of one of the uh, beautiful women that often, mm. uh, and and him from, for him to escape, and it was it's a contrived setup, yeah. seemingly just to create a setup to to start the film off, which has absolutely nothing at all, which is which is you know it's, it's refreshing in a way. It is refreshing because I think a lot of the time when they link the opening ti- the title, the open pre-title sequence to the film too much, it kind of. I like the fact that sometimes you get this sort of additional bonus mission, and that's like it's like it's a film within itself. It doesn't. It's true, but it but it is quite odd, isn't it? That it doesn't link at all anything with the film. It's all yeah. I can I can see that in, in many ways, but it's it is quite unusual. It's almost like. We can't think of something to do which relates to the film, so let's just throw things else in for, for seven had, or eight minutes and 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 set it set it up to open the film to give it into. into my, my idea, if you know, this is looking with with hindsight, and maybe this is a little bit too you know too much of a fan's perspective, uh, you know, particularly someone who's read the Fleming mm-hmm. short story. Was could they not have had the face off with Dexter Smythe as the as the pre-title sequence? Because the short story, a lot of the short story actually doesn't feature Bond, but it's got this whole like Dexter Smythe going out to the um, to the the Alps, the Austrian Alps, or wherever it is, and he's got his guide, whose name is Hans Oberhauser, and then that could be like the first part, and then the second part could be Bond coming out, coming back, coming twenty years later, and confronting Dexter Smythe, and then Dexter Smythe. Um, they didn't use this story in the film, but they just say he committed suicide. But actually, what happens in the short story is Dexter Smythe he gets he gets stung by poisonous scorpion fish, and then he falls into the octopus tank, and then that would be a good place to end it. But do you think that's going a little bit too far? And Yeah, it is. And I, and I think, to be honest, we can spend... Because then many... it would relate to what happens later in <laughs> well, the film. It's true, at it's least true. it wouldn't be directly related, but it would relate more... Yeah, I look, I, I think there is, and we, we can look at it in all sorts of ways. I, I, I think we, we run with the film as it is, in my view. I mean, we could, we could you know, take apart many aspects of it. Look, OK, I'm going to give you my opening, my opening thoughts of it, and it's very simply this. I think it's a very enjoyable two hours of that film. Mm-hmm. I think it holds up well. I don't get bored any way through the film. I think there are some, you know, really interesting. It's a classy film. I put this out there. Say, this is the thing that strikes me with this film: the location setting, particularly the India setting, is very classy. And this is what you know. Not all Bond films look have that classy feel. Some have, um, 
you know, less less of a of a classy look. I, I, I for just as a contrast, a view to a kill, I don't think looks classy in the same way. This looks classy, and of course we'll discuss that in due course. But the fact is, this this has that look. It's got that real. It looks like a quality film, well made, well put together. Um, it doesn't look like they've uh, scrimped on, on on anything. It looks like they've really put the budget out there, and it looks good, and it play it plays good in that way. So that was my 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 initial thinking in that sense. I think it runs well, as I say. It's an entertaining film. It's um, and I I get a sense of this film. And I don't know if you agree. It's almost played as if it is Roger Moore's swan song. I feel that, and I think the opening titles and 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 the song by Rita Coolidge, which is All Time High. It's melancholy in some ways, and it's got this sort of sense of, you know, this is bye-bye. Roger Moore saying goodbye, which, of course, we know it wasn't his goodbye. And by this stage, however, of course, he was doing one picture. You know, he'd had three movies where he'd signed a deal, and now it was one by one he was doing them. And this was already a kind of bonus film for Roger Moore because they they wanted to... Um, they, they had effectively cast James Brolin and they only brought Roger Moore back because of That's the correct. competition with Never Say Never Again. So you've got Sean Connery to thank for, yeah. for Roger Moore coming back. They really were desperate. They were scared of taking a risk with a new Bond with Sean Connery coming. They thought that would be a disaster, so they decided to play it safe. And so Roger Moore was persuaded, probably with a, with a nice bundle of extra cash, to come back and do the film, this film again. And they thought that would be it. And Roger Moore puts in a terrific performance in this. I'd say it's probably his in his top three best performances after maybe Live and Let Die and The Spy Who Loved Me. In, in my kind of yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 I probably agree with you on that one. It's interesting. Many of the critics don't rate this film. You know, many of them put this in a, a, a rate this quite lowly. They they say it's anachronistic. Uh, they don't think it, they think it's just played um, for. It's not serious. It doesn't play. I think they're wrong. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. Um, I think time has been kind to this film. Yeah, I think it's it stands the test of time. I think it's, as I say, a well-made film. I think Moore is definitely playing it more for laughs. That's there's no doubt he's playing it more for laughs. Uh, he's more at leisure in this. He's he's sort of relaxed in this film. Um, he's an older Bond. There's no doubt he's aged. Quite, I think he's aged by now. Um, but the role is tailored to the fact that he's an absolutely, older absolutely. I think it is, and I think they've got more age-appropriate uh, Maud Adams, who'd played with him with uh, you know only eight years previously in *The Man with the Golden Gun*, and she was brought back in. She was surprised to be wearing. She was brought in for the screen test with James Brolin. James Brolin, and, they, in, and in she that wasn't one. expecting to actually get the role I, I, I think they, they, their producers actually their, their number one choice was Faye Dunaway apparently really well that's apparently st- well well all, all I know is she thought she was being asked to do and she did the screen test she did they did the scene from from Russia with Love uh was the screen test and she played the character was okay and uh effectively and so anyway she 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 thought that was it but they they decided no we think you're going to be the you know and she was interested. now interesting of course she's she's a Swedish actress and she played the part before, and of course uh, Christina Weyborn who Kate was in this one as well who played Magda mm-hmm. is also Swedish so two Swedes in, in the film but two yeah. v- contrasts they're tight contrasting characters they're not at all the same I, if- I find it a little bit hard to differentiate the two uh, I mean obviously I've seen the film enough now that I can but they do. It does seem, for all intents and purposes, that Christina Weyborn's Magda is the protege of Octopussy. 
but she is she she is like the number two, and it's she, and that's why maybe the the characters have to be similar. But, I don't know. I think, but I think as an actress, I think she's sufficiently different from um, uh, the Maud Adams in this way. They have contrast in that sense. Um, uh, and of course, we I have an interesting fact about her because the I've been to the James Bond Museum in Sweden. Now, the James Bond Museum in Sweden is located in a, in a small city, an industrial city called Nibro. And Nibro is actually the hometown of Christina Weyborn. Really, really, which is a kind of strange fact because it's a very it's a very random little city. It's like, <laughs> well, it's interesting. Look, so look, I, I, let me give you just a further thought. So look, I think those two are very good bonkers. Of course, um, unless you correct me. Um, I think they are the the other Swedish actress who played in a but was Britt Eklund, Brit yeah. uh, and we you know let's talk about her in due course. But effectively, um, it's interesting that these two, and I think they they they're very good. Both of them are extremely good yeah. in this film. Um, so uh, you know, I think the film is is a real a joy to watch. I think it's an enjoyable and, film. And the chemistry that Roger Moore has with both the actresses in this film, it's just if you compare this to his. His chemistry with BB Dahl and um, and um, Carol Bouquet in the in the last fil last film mm. for your eyes only. I think that the pairings here, mm. particularly with Maud Adams, it's just a much better. Well, I did a, a bit of calculations on the ages. At this stage, Roger Moore is fifty five, right? Right. He's fifty five. Maud Adams is thirty eight uh, in in this film, uh, and uh, uh, Christina Wayborn is thirty two. Right. Oh, okay. You know, she's she, she's a bit a bit younger in that way. Uh, interesting. By the same token, Louis Jordan is sixty-two. Yeah, by, by he's sixty-two. Sixty-two in this, in this film. Yeah, he's sixty-two. He's wow. sixty-two. Wow. Uh, and um, but you know, it just looks. It doesn't. I, I I look personally. I think this is a better film than For Your Eyes Only, and we will discuss that in, in due course in this way. I think many people. You know, uh, it, it, that's not a bad film in all sorts of ways. Louis Jordan, though, is fantastic in this. Uh, I think like, he's a great I haven't, villain. Have you seen him in other films? Uh, I'm not from. I haven't seen him, but he's, he's, he's a classy actor. I mean, that's why he was chosen, because he's a friend of Cubby Broccoli, in this sense. But I think he, he, he oozes class in this film. He's suave himself, uh, and he's an interesting contrast to Roger Moore, because, you know, you think, who could be most suave as Roger Moore? But I think he gives him a good run for his money. I think he's got an almost James Mason-type quality to him, and that it kind of harkens back. The auction scene in particular, mm. I, I, I see parallels to the auction scene in North by Northwest. I don't mm. know how familiar you are with mm. with that. But but um, but no, I mean, I, 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 the, the other obvious villain to talk about is Stephen Burkhoff, um, General Orlov. Well, Stephen Burkhoff is Stephen Burkhoff. You know, he is a, a bit of a, a interesting character in all sorts of ways. Character actor, uh, a bit on the um, neurotic side of, of performances, and and indeed he plays to that in the in this film. Um, and I think he's quite entertaining in, in that role in in that sense. Um, and the way the way he 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 speaks, and he, when he's given his little speech in the um, the KGB. Um, Kremlin operations room, a fantastic set that he's like, he speaks and every, and, every, and as, as he's talking, he, he raises his voice and he's like, Czechoslovakia. Yeah. He's like, he's going to show you this on the new Kutsov computer. Yeah. But it is. And you've got to also remember when this film was being made, the Soviet Union was still, you know, still Soviet Union. You still also East Germany. Oh, hadn't been yet. So, so in this way, you can see what a critic says. It's anachronistic. It is certainly anachronistic in, in, in the sense of much of this doesn't apply in, today, in today's world, and, and, and that's true. But nonetheless, I think there's so much more about this film which, which 
goes, uh, you know, which still makes it a great film to watch in today's age. I don't think that dates it in that sense. It dates it in, in a technical sense, for sure. But I think there's enough about this film to um, really hold up, irrespective of its time period, which is now 38 years ago. 38 years, yeah. 38 years ago, it's a long time. and uh, But nonetheless, a, a, you know, a very good, very entertaining film. So, so my overview, and I, we will go into detail, is great film, very enjoyable, um, ticks a lot of boxes for me. I, I, you know, of, of Roger Moore's films, it's, it's up there at the top. You know, it's, it's difficult to give ratings to films because there are, how do, you, how do you rate all films in so many ways? But it's one of the ones that I would, I would definitely put on a, on a list of saying, yep, yeah, it's near the top of them. And it's, in many ways, it shouldn't work. There are many ways it shouldn't work. I mean, many of us who are critical about it, I think there are things about this film which you could. I could pick out loads of flaws. I'll tell you one flaw which I wonder if you you noticed, or one thing which I found was bizarre, and that is when he goes into Universal Exports and sees Miss Money Penny and Miss uh, Smallbone or whatever. And it's small. Is it Smallbone? Yeah, the Smallbone. Yeah. Okay. If you saw, he's got a hat in his hand. Right. He's taking a hat. Hats by that stage are out of. He, oh, but to be fair, Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore—they always, almost always—you'll see them whenever they go into the office. They've always got the hat in their hand. I agree, but it, and the but hat is flung, or it's, it's, you I never just, see them wearing the hat. No, no, no. You did see, you did see both um, Sean Connery in and, the gun barrel. Yeah, you know, yeah, in that. But no, you did see. Um, I, I, I stand to be corrected, but I'm pretty sure. You have seen Sean Connery wear a hat in in one of the, in, in maybe in golfing or on a golf pitch. I think he wears a hat. Okay, I think he does. Um, and but certainly, you don't and see certain... him wear the hat. To, to be to be to be honest, that to, to be kind of quite accurate, it is traditional when you go inside um, inside a, inside an office or a building to remove your hat first. So there's no reason why they would be wearing the hat in the office. But my point is, Roger Moore never wore a hat. I mean, listen, my, my point yeah. is that's my argument. The issue is, why has he got a hat in his hand? Roger Moore never wears a hat. It's almost like, what are we trying to say here? This, yeah. this is this, so that thing stood out for me as one of those unusual things, which you, which you pick out the the little things which you pay attention to. I'm sure Bond fans will will will, will maybe. I mean, was that something you thought about when you saw it? I don't know, but it's sort of it's a little thing like that which which stood out for me in that way as a strange uh, anachronism, mm. if if you like. Um, also, you've got to remember this was um, Robert Brown's first film as M. Right. Yeah, I was going to mention. Yeah, after the uh, clearly after the death. How do you uh, how do you think he, he he compares to Bernard Lee because he's obviously that that is that his his immediate predecessor. Okay, I don't think he's a patch on Bernard Lee, and I think the mistake here is because it's never really clear. Well, after somebody else is playing the role. You, you sort of so think, is he meant to be playing the same character or the same person of who Bernard Lee was? Or is this meant to be a different person playing M? Because to be honest with you, my feeling is he's a poor imitation Bernard Lee. That's the way that, I... That's the way growing up I always saw Robert Brown is I, I didn't think, I didn't find there to be that much to differentiate him to Bernard Lee. Uh, the, what I would say though is Robert Brown's portrayal in this film and I think all of the films, he tends to be quite grumpy. Yes, there's no, there's no warmth about him, as I say. Whereas Bernard Lee uh, could be pretty cutting. There was a warmth about him. I don't think there's a warmth about Robert Brown um, in this way. And I don't think I think he's perfunctionary in the role. He, he does the role, eh, whatever. 
but I don't think it's it, it's anywhere near uh, a Bernard uh, to the standard or quality of Bernard Lee. Uh, and of course, the first significant contrast we got was when Judy Judy Dench took over in that role and really reinvented the role in her own way. And I think that was that was quite a, a remarkable uh, performance by her. But clearly, Robert Brown is is sort of like just doing doing the role so there is a degree of conservatism with this film and with view to a kill and even the living daylights where they the producers don't seem to have wanted to make too many changes like they they kept on money penny they were sort of toying with the idea of a replacement that's why penelope smallbone mm -hmm. is there and you know this is very much they're keeping the old guard they, they've got robert brown who has had been in the series before mm -hmm. as admiral hardgreaves they, they and of course you, you still have roger moore but they didn't seem to be wanting to make too many sudden changes, especially maybe because they were competing with mm. Never Say Never Again at this time. Yeah, and I think you're, I think you're right. And again, it's you know, and she of course disappears after this film, Miss Smallbone. She's yeah. not, in the, not in the next one at all. Um, and, so, and so that's that is quite an interesting. And yes, look, I think there are um, they're clearly again working on a basis as I see it is this is Roger Moore's last film. Let's give him a, 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 a you know let's not do too anything too radical let's keep it in that sort of in that sort of vein um yeah i mean so that's my, look that's my initial overview i can i'll go into detail and i'll give you some certain mm. things after but i'd be interested in your yeah. view harrison on what's your initial thoughts of this so, film and, and how do you rate it my perspective on this film has changed you know gradually over time i think the first time i this may have been the first bond film i see i have because I, I have as a child this vague recollection of being quite creeped out by the clown at the beginning mm. And it, it, I mean that's a fantastic sequence. The mm. whole uh, the, the clown being chased and then the knife in the back and then him floating down the river mm. and crashing through the ambassador's mm. residence. Uh, I, I, so that's my earliest memory of this film. I, I think growing up, this was one of the films that was considered to be, um, as you say, less critic less critically acclaimed. So I sort of I never really took it that seriously, and I, and I, I think. The challenge you have watching this film is it doesn't take itself seriously. Mm. It's not as ridiculous as, let's say, Diamonds of Forever or McDine of the Day, uh, Moonraker. It's it's a nice sort of midpoint. But when you watch, when you watch uh, Stephen Burkhoff's character of all of as an example, he's very over the top, very dramatic, and you're like, I can't take this guy seriously. But then over time, I've as I've watched this film more and more, uh, it, it, more and more, that's kind of a nice little pun. But it's. It's really starting to grow on me, and mm. I actually like. I love the John Barry score. I think it's one of the one of the better scores of the series. Mm. And yeah. it, it, there's no shortage of action in this film. And on top of that, you have what is a very sort of traditional um, Soviet era kind of spy film in the tradition of From Russia with Love. So it's really it's really grabbing a lot of different aspects, and it blends them pretty well. The the exotic locales, the, the all the different palaces. You've got mm. the monsoon palace, which is where Kamal Khan, Khan lives. You've got the floating palace for Octopussy. You've got that fantastic hotel. It's just, I, I think the, the movie does drag a little bit in the India sequences in the middle. And I think that's only because they just have so many... Exotic what, locations. Give me an example. Where, where do you think it drags? Because I, 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 to Probably. me, it doesn't. I think it's, it, it, where I, I challenge you, I'll be interested to see where you think that is the case. Because I think... You know the scenes uh, sort of sh you know shift from location to location or different places to place because there are a multiple of villains. 
It actually doesn't ever. I, I don't think it does, Drake. I'll be so honest. I'm interested in you because I think it. You know, what you're with Kamal Khan on one side, then it's Octopussy, then it's General Orlov, and and then you've got yeah. the twins. Uh, you know, the, 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 with uh, an, uh, you know, and I think so. I think it shunts around with yeah. these different places. So where do you think? I it's, think what I mean by that is they because they've got they've got these two different palaces. You know, maybe they could have combined a sequence. Also, you have the the whole the whole bit where he's escaping and they're they're doing the hunt. Like uh, I think that's a I think that's a reference to something else. And then you know he has the tiger, he has the snake, he has the spider, he has the this uh, he has the the leeches, and then he has to crawl across, avoid the crocodiles, and get in the the boat. And I just like it, it works. But it's just like, could they not have condensed that a little bit? Well, that's a good... In like, fact, there's some good parts about that one. I'm glad you mentioned about the where, hunt. And where's Sheriff J.W. Pepper? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would have been the icing on the cake. You expect him to be on that tourist boat. And when you know, Roger Moore comes on, he's like, are you with our group? And he's like, no, 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 no ma'am. No, ma'am. I'm with the economy. I'm with the economy. Uh, uh, that, that cracks me up. But, where, but why, yeah. why is Sheriff J.W. Well, Pepper not there's there? Another, there's another part in that film, which you're probably too young to remember, and that is where he confronted with the tiger. And he goes, sit! Uh, which yeah. is which is it's referencing a... Barbara Woodhouse, who was a very popular um, dog trainer in her in that time in that era, and this is an example of the Bond films referencing something which made a lot of sense in 1983, but in 2021, probably people think would have no idea what that reference is about but that's what that is and i think you're right some of those things elements are preposterous or we just to the, when the snake's calling over hiss off you know you know that's quite quite funny parts about that but yeah okay so that's and then, but that's they, and then later that's when he goes to, to when he goes to germany there is a very long and drawn out before he's even running for the bomb i'm talking about he goes to the circus he goes to he goes he meets up with them goes across the circus he's then at the first circus then he helps he sneaks onto the train. They're, they're, they're shifting. They're switching the trains. Then there's the whole like fight on the train. Well, there's a car chase fight on the train. It, it does drag quite a bit, but I don't know. But I don't. Is know. that drag? Is it? I'm not, I don't think it's drag because it's quite action orientated. Yeah. There's lots of things happening. So it, what you're saying is they drag out a sequence, if you like, or, or a ser- for a series of episodes, which are all part of a long sequence. And you're saying perhaps could they have, uh, have reduced it or, 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 or combined a combined sequence or two? It, because that, and then at the it. end, of course, we have the we have another two climaxes. We have the fight at the Monsoon Palace, mm. uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and then you have the airplane sequence. Mm. So, you know, did they like, oh, look, I'm not, it's not my major gripe with this film. I actually, you know, overall, I, 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 I've, I've watched it five times in the last two weeks and I enjoyed it each time. So, <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. And so, so, so you like, what's, I mean, tell me again, parts which stand out for you. For me, yeah. okay. So for me, everything from like I, the opening, the, the pre-title sequence, sequence, I think it's, it's pretty average in my estimation. It, it's okay. Um, for me, the high point of the film is from the moment you've got 009 dressed as a clown, and uh, then you have the Fabergé egg auction sequence. You have the KGB sequence. Those those three little bits I, I love, and and then the whole the whole part where he's run he's sort of mm. chasing the bomb and he's got to run. He's got to get the hitchhike. He's got to hitchhike him. There's there's, there's the confrontation with the Misha and Grisha twins or one of them or two of them at various points, and then he goes into the circus for some reason that we don't really get he decides to dress up as a clown okay um, and not just a clown the same clown clown costume which 009 who yeah. got murdered which is so you know it didn't, didn't go well for it, 009 well, but it, but, it, but i like that because it gives an element of symmetry to the film okay it's true and, and it makes and it really it really builds on the tension because he's got to go in and he's wearing those clown shoes and they're like they are the lead boots like he is he's being held back and people are jumping on him trying to stop him and he's trying to stop this bomb it's like being in a nightmare actually 
you know you just you just have to, you're just being held back um and then he goes across the general and, the, and the, uh, he's not believed either because the, why is the general going to believe this guy is dressed as a clown he's like surely this is part of the act of course there's a bomb in the cannon it's a cannon but then he finally breaks free octopusy realizes he's you know he realizes that that she's been double crossed she shoots out the the cannon you can see there's the bomb and then he, he's got 14 seconds to defuse the bomb and the, the, the tension like everything goes completely quiet and he's uh, look it's true I, I think so i mean look uh, firstly I, I agree i actually think the bo uh, bomb dressed as a clown in, in some ways you could think this is so preposterous this shouldn't work but it does work he actually carries pathos in that role and that's the interesting thing you know there's an element of you know, this should be so ridiculous that James Bond... Well, you can't imagine Sean Connery doing this scene, I hasten to add. But somehow, he doesn't... It doesn't. It's not played for laughs in such a, a, a daft way and, and that makes it ridiculous. It doesn't. It actually holds your attention in this sense. And, of course, there's the, the police are trying to stop this lunatic in there and they get the other clown who's dressed just like him and they, they catch him rather than uh, James Bond in that sense. Um, that's, that is a great scene, I hasten to add. My my difficulty is, of course, the the the, uh, the bomb and actually dismantling the bomb and, and, and so and so forth. My difficulty with this one, of course, is if I think back to Goldfinger and Fort Knox bomb, where James Bond is wondering what to do to stop the bomb, and then the expert comes and switches it off just in time. In this case, he's now the expert on how to defuse a bomb, he's, and, and he's he does the it. And he, he saw them put the bomb. He saw. He, yeah, he, he was there listening when he they, might be. He might. Yeah. Be, but but I, I think it, it's now a situation where James Bond is the man who can now do what you know. You could. You might have observed them too. I'm not sure you would be able to, you know, to defuse a bomb, but he could. But my issue was again the rather contrived element that it's with a second to go. He pulls it out a second to go. I mean, that's a little bit pushing it in that one. It builds to the tension, but but nice. Yeah, but look, this is a minor, a minor. It's a, look, I, 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 I don't have a problem with that. I think the problem that a lot, a lot of people have with this sequence is how did he have time to get dressed as a clown, which should have taken him 20, 30 <laughs> minutes when he only had five. I, I, the way I read this is actually we're, we're seeing we're seeing the we're seeing different. At different points, we're seeing the countdown, but actually, there's no reason why he couldn't have got there in the timeline. There's no reason why he didn't get the 30 minutes. Well, before. I think that's a good because you, when he's driving the car, there's 45 minutes to go. Well, it's interesting so you no say that. He couldn't have got there. You know, that is one of my 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 things. The other one I have, equally about you know unbelievable sequences, if you like, is the car on the you know when he when he's chasing after the train and he gets onto the track in a car and a gauge that happens to fit the wheels, which of course is contrived. The car but, but, was adapted, but. It was a science fact. No, no, it was possible. No, no. They adapted the car no, to do no, it. That's the point. But that's not the point I was going to get to. The thing yeah. is, after and, and you know, he just gets off the car just before it crashes into another track, and it goes crashes into the water. You know? Yeah, yeah. Almost within two minutes, a crane is taking it out the water, and it's almost like, do me a favor. If a crane was going to come and make your car, that would take two or three days. But again, you know? I'm looking at it from a perspective that. The way they've edited it, it could have actually been possible for the for, for like when Gogol discovers the whole scheme, he goes to the Kremlin Art Depository or whatever we call it, depository, mm. and he 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 realizes what what um, he realizes what Olov's up to. That could have actually happened a, a day earlier. Like we just we're just seeing it. In, uh, yeah, I, in think a, that's, I think that's I think that's I think that seems a rather contrived the car, answer. And to they're on to they're <laughs> on to him. And, and like who's to say that they didn't take the car out two hours later after it landed in the river? Uh, yeah, I I find it I, I because I you've to... got. Four hours, three and a half, four hours to go to the bomb goes off. So Listen, that could have actually been shot out of different. Yeah, sequences. yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a lovely answer. I, might, I think it's unbelievable to the actual time it takes to get a crane to get the works in, for them to even know the car had crashed into the. You know, 
I know, so what, what is Olof doing? Because he, why has he got the jewels and not? Why has Kamal Khan not got them? Because they're my understanding of the plot here was that Olof ah, was interested. Olof was interested in 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 causing this nuclear explosion in order that then his hawkish um, his hawkish plan of going into Europe unopposed could could happen. But I didn't. I didn't understand his motivation to be money or to be the the jewellery hall. Like I understood that that was to be given to Kamal Khan, or at least shared with Kamal Khan. But in this part, you see Olaf's racing away in the car, and then the car's taken by Bond, and it's got the jewellery in the back. And it seemed to me like almost like Olaf was trying to double cross Khan and keep the jewellery as well. Well, I think but, again coming back to to the plot, I think the plot is very confused. Um, I, I don't think it's got clarity as to what it is because I'm confused who the real baddie. I mean, look, we know General Orlov is a, is a real baddie who wants to get domination of the world, and you know, so he's more in your traditional sense of a, a sort of a blowful schmirsch type, you know, type villain in a sense of he wants world domination, he wants power, he wants that, you know. Um, Kamal Khan, uh, you know, he, he's he's suave, and he he obviously is seeking to make make serious money in in this sense, and he's aligned with Orlov in this way. But uh, and he he's obviously got his henchmen uh, around him. But it's it's very he's on a sort of different level, and it's not clear he's clearly a baddie, and he's clearly quite happy to turn a blind eye to to people being blown up in their, in their thousands if not millions in order to support that to make money. So he's he's not a good guy. Octopus's role. Is is bizarre. I'm I'm still you know couldn't quite work out. She she's into jewels or seems to be seems to be in in the jewel business or seeking to try trade. That seems to be, but it is a rather complex sort of arrangement. But my point of it is, and I think this is the overall from my perspective. You may agree or disagree. Is I don't think it detracts from the film. No, no, no. I, I think all of these things, all of the uh, incidents which we, we can isolate. We could look at this film alongside another film which has a similar kind of double villain scenario with being the living daylights which is two films after so i think mm. there are parallels between this film and the living daylights um notably in the conservatism of the production mm. but you have there georgi koskov working mm. in tandem with uh brad whittaker mm. and the character of georgi koskov is i mean he's playing it he's mm. really overacting it mm. but i i think that that plot is even harder to, to comprehend i think you can actually boil this film down to okay i get what this is kind of going on here and why these two people would be working together but what i what and I, what i was going to ask you actually is do you think they killed off all of too early because the, the last man standing is kamal khan mm. and he at that point is for all intents and purposes the number one bad villain and a lot of people see him as the number one villain but surely all of was, you know, should they, did, you know, did they kill him too early? Well, should they have killed here, killed off Kamal Khan maybe first, and, and let all of be the last one standing? Yeah, but that's interesting. But I don't understand. Or had them both died together. Well, well, yeah. What I don't understand is why um, Kamal Khan kidnaps Octopussy in the plane. I don't, I don't quite understand what 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 he's hoping to achieve by doing this and going off with Gabinda and her and escaping from the palace. I, I didn't quite understand it. Equally, um, of course, when Kamal Khan gave the, and we're we're jumping all over the place, and let's, let's be clear about us. Yeah. But the business where um, 
he gets the the man with the blade in the palace and he says he gives the instruction he buy you know goes to them and he says i want you to 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 do a job for me and he puts a a, a bottle of you know a pot of coins in there and he laughs at him and he puts two coins he says yeah and then he's he like, you know, he gives him half the money yeah. he's, like, he's like oh we don't want any problems with the lady and yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like oh okay i'll double it and he's yeah like, sure. well what the thing and is then not only that he like gives the evil laugh he's like one second he doesn't want to cause you know he doesn't yeah. want to rock about it, and then suddenly he's like <laughs> yeah yeah well that's the thing but like, the thing is he's he's the lunatic with the with the blade actually doesn't care he's actually aiming for either a bond or or a you know octopusy in that sense and the other thing about that since we're again uh, scenes which i found problematic of course she has in her in her room uh, a boudoir she has um a, a tank with an octopus in there and of course when our our friend with the blade is in there of course and he's uh, fighting and whatever and and bond is and de destroying the room of course bond shunts him in through the glass into into the uh tank and of course the octopus is over him and destroying him now what i found quite amazing about that is octopusy shrugs and it doesn't does is her, her prized octopus is is dead you know it's going to be exposed because smashed the tank and she doesn't bet an eyelid about this i mean <laughs> I, I mean that's that's something i'll give you a few other points and again you can pick up on on things you may uh, we've mentioned about the car out of the river and the unbelievability as i see it anyway that one i've mentioned also about the bomb with the second to go a few other things which which stood out for me were um well apart from the octopus as well uh the gorilla suit um, the fact that he's in the gorilla suit, which was also a bit, you know, funny or really ridiculous. But within a second, when K K uh, Gabinda can see he he's in there, he goes to get the knight in a blade and he's going to knock him and you think he's going to get Bond and Bond's already going out the roof. How did he get out of the costume so quickly as that? How did he manage to escape? The yeah. I mean, I think again, something... there's an assumption yeah. that yeah. something was, was edited out maybe that yeah, yeah, yeah. sped up the time frame. A no, 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 bit, but... no. But I, again, I think it's, my point is... Also, that... the, the important question that I don't think we'll ever know the answer to is which one of the Misha Grisha twins did he kill with the cannon? Which one died first? Ah, yeah, we don't know. We, we do know, actually, because when they're on the roof of the train, the brother, bizarrely, thinks that Roger Moore is his brother because they're wearing, because obviously he takes True. his costume. I don't know how, because the, the Grisha twins are actually quite small build compared <laughs> to Roger Moore, but somehow Roger Moore fits into this guy's shirt and trousers and whatever. And, and he's like, Grisha or Misha. And yeah. then he turns around and he's like, oh, that's not... <laughs> No, that's right. And of course, also when he kills him, he goes, you know, at the end when he when he think they've got, you know, throwing the knives at him and he's pinning him to the door. And of course, he opens the door and then he gets a knife and he goes, and that's for, and he goes, that's that's his brother, brother, and he goes, that's for 009. Double double you know, I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> that's that's a good a good scene in that sense. Of course, there's also there's other things about. We haven't spoken about Gabinda. No, we haven't mentioned about him. Okay, so there are elements. Kabir with... Beddy is the eight. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. No, and he, um, Gabinda. Okay, interesting. He's also quite a smooth villain. You know, he's smooth in the same sense of Louis Jordan. He's also quite a smooth character in this sense he's not he's and he looks quite an intelligent individual in a sense he doesn't look like a just a, a usual dimwit he's not a jaws or, or, or an odd job in this way he's a serious figure but he has that physical presence he's got a presence and, and, of, and of course in the backgammon where he breaks the you know he crushes the dice is reminiscent of odd odd, odd job in uh goldfinger and a golf ball where he, you know in that sense so there's similarities but they don't there. turn him into a caricature which i think is great because it doesn't because i think if they'd done that it would have just been 
We've just taken the film down too comedic. Uh, the film is already lighthearted enough. It didn't need. No, no, I don't think they do make a fall out of this character. He 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 keeps his uh, a sense of gravitas about him as a character, uh, and I think he's very good. He, he plays the role very well, and uh, he has a sense of menace to him in this way. Um, so that's certainly true. The things like what I don't understand in the film. Let's get another of these odd scenes, and that is. Uh, again, where um, Magda see, see, comes to seduce Bond to get the egg, in, in this sense. And, you know, he's will, more than happy to play along with her in this sense. And we know it's got a, a microchip in there, and, and she, she spends the, evening, the night with him before she's um, time to leave, and she uh, goes over the balcony, you know, to be taken away by um, Kamal Khan. My question is, OK, he goes out, he looks out the window, and he gets a bash on his head because Gabinda... Why did they go through that ridiculous process? If we're going to bash him over his head already, why did they send Magda? Why did they just bash him over the head and, and, and take him? It's almost like I couldn't say, hold on a minute, what was all that for? I think I think maybe they uh, they didn't want him to be too on his guard, so they were trying to soften him up a little bit and make him, you know, he, he's he's off guard because he's given, she's got the egg and he's he's it's when he least expects to be knocked out cold that, that it happens. And they, they want to interrogate him as well. Maybe. But, uh, and then when, when they're around the dinner table... <laughs> He says, oh, uh, you know, how are you going to interrogate me? And, and I think Kamal says we're going to use some kind of psychedelic a agent. Is he really going to do that? Like, is he really going to do that? Like, I don't believe him when he says that. But... Well, and Roger Moore doesn't seem that phased, but he's like, oh, OK. Well, I find that, that, that just seems quite interesting, of course, when they serve him the sheep's head with the eyes in it. And he, and he, and he looks at Gabinda and he goes, you know, when someone stares at you, you, put the, you, know, you lose your, uh, you know, your appetite or you know and that, that's quite a quite a, a funny scene because he's no way he was going to eat that but and... they, they give him a souf, the souffle mm. and then they he's just tucking into it and mm. then yeah, he, says something that, he says something a bit critical he's like oh why am i here and then they're like then they come and immediately take it away and yeah. they give him the sheep's head so i did, did you notice did you notice yeah that? yeah he doesn't, I, he doesn't even it doesn't really eat anything no, but no, Kamal Khan also doesn't eat it no, he's no. like <laughs> you just take a spoonful and that's about it, it look it's it's look there are the sheep's head it's it, the next year, um, Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom would come out and they kind of really, they really made use of that scene when you had the, uh, uh, what was it, chilled monkey brains. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. You, I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. And, and that's, so that was, look, those are quite interesting um, elements in this way. I, and I think it's, um, yeah, I, I look, there, there are there are so many scenes which which stand out. I mean, uh, well, let's, let's, you know, go to the, um, go back to the uh, scene in the auction rooms, mm -hmm. you know, and he's got uh, Jim uh, Fanning, Fanning with Fanning, him, yeah. who's played by Douglas Wilmore. Douglas Wilmore was a played Sherlock Holmes in the 1950s, 60s, um, you know, character actor. He was also in episodes of The Saint. And indeed, what's interesting, because I've got been watching old episodes of The Saint on the DVD and, and going through them, and I found the episode, by the way, where uh, Roger Moore is James Bond in, in, in the Saint? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's quite it's quite funny. He's asked this one to be you know secret agent. He says, but "You're James Bond," and he says, "Well, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm Simon Templer, the Saint." You know, but it's it's quite funny in, in that one. But no, Douglas Wilmer is is in there, and Douglas Wilmer is, was a, a classic actor in, in that sense. So that's quite a good scene. I mean, the whole thing. Now I don't know about you, but I was I, I watched that scene again and again, and I didn't see. Roger Moore or James Bond switching switching anything. No, right? yeah. yeah. He 
foot's the same. It's exactly the same egg back. I thought there's no sight of hand. He would have here. had to have had the egg balanced on his lap <laughs> yeah, exactly. somehow, precariously, and who, surely someone would have seen that. Exactly. And they just let him do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that was. But just... he has no rationale to to do that. Like no, no, no. Exactly, you know. exactly. But Last... still, but it's. But I think it's. Look, I think it's believable because James Bond could do anything. <laughs> you know, if he can, if he can hold on to a plane. Like, you know, 20,000 feet in the air, hang off a plane, then why can't he switch an egg with no one else seeing it? No, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's just it's just a thing. But it's a good scene in Good and Weird starts the bidding. And, you know, Jim Fanning's looking around and he sees his Bond doing it. He, he just looks so irate. Like, he's just like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, let's see how much he wants it. You know what I mean? I just, I just love, like, for me, it's just the reaction of Fanning. Like, when he does this, uh, he just looks so, he's just so on edge at this point. <laughs> now that's but that's that's a good good scene in the in the film. I think there are I say it's it's got some very good elements to it in, in, in you know in parts and, and all sorts of. Ways. And then you've got and then you've got obviously the other key actor which you haven't mentioned so much. So BJ. BJ BJ Armitage BJ Armitage who was a tennis star. Were you was were you familiar with him from the time? I, I wasn't familiar with him at the time. I, I wasn't a, a, he wasn't a, a figure that I was particularly. But if you were a tennis fan, you would be familiar with him. He was quite a performer in this one. Of course, they play to him being a tennis player. You know, he'd moved into acting and they play in this one. With he, the wasn't, youth. he wasn't a, an accredited actor, though. So they, no. had, they had issues with the unions. They had to actually, if you you see there's a character of Sadruddin. Mm. Sadruddin was brought in because there was a compromise where they had to bring in another actor. <laughs> so that's why you have Sadruddin as well. But yeah. I, I don't think Vijay gets, he doesn't get enough to do in this film, though. No, like he's good. He's good, but he, he played it was with he, you know, he's I think he plays well with with um Bond in this film. I think he makes some good jokes of game set and match he does with his te- he uses his tennis racket in this sense. Um you know, the issue with the actual um, where they go and they and they play the back game and he wins all that money and he takes some money and he, you know, easy come, easy go, you know, and he throws it. In fact, the money, I was working out how much money he actually won. Do you know how much money he won in, in, in UK? 200,000 rupees. Yeah, and now, do you know how much that equates in pounds today? I reckon it's probably about today or then. Well... It, Given it's forty years ago, I was looking. I was looking more uh, at today. How much would you think it is? Let's say about fifty thousand pounds today. No, well, no, nowhere near. It took about two thousand pounds. It was nothing. Is that all? It was nothing. How much was it then? Uh, and that's a good question. That I'm not sure of, but it's certainly nothing. Well, uh, uh, did you, were you using the exchange rate on today's on today's exchange? <laughs> I am using pounds. today's. Right? I mean, it's, oh, oh, it's well, nothing. That... It's, it's it's absolutely nothing in today's. Right? It might be a bit more in those days, and perhaps you could do a search on that one. But certainly, it's not as much as you think it might well be. Um, it, and to know. be fair, it doesn't look like that much money because you see that he's got like I think there's about four or five or maybe six packet wads of wads of cash. Yeah, he gives about two wads to Sadruddin, then he gives he gives two to to VJ, mm. and then he keeps either two or four, and then and then it's quite convenient because he puts it in his pocket and he, he gets stabbed through the wad, and he's like, thank God for hard currency and. And just ends up throwing all this money away. Yeah, what would you do in cryptocurrency? Eh? It would have been that been the end of James Bond, wouldn't yeah. it? Really, in that sense. So no, no, we haven't spoken that much about the backgammon scene, and it's a no. great, a great way for for Bond to be introduced to Kamal Khan. And well, it's it's it, to me again the similarities with Goldfinger yeah. and the cheating. You know, where Goldfinger's cheating on 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 the uh, golf course in Goldfinger. Here, he's cheating with his dice, his lucky dice, which uh, Bond obviously is seeing what he's doing, and the major's being caught out. And that's how Bond says, I'll, I'll take over the, the bet. And he says, ah. Oh. And, uh, and he says, oh, 
you know, what was it? He uses um, uh, he uses a term which is it takes the dice. Players privilege, players privilege. which doesn't exist. Yeah, 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 I don't point. agree. It's nonsense. So he takes his dice, which uh, and he remarkably gives him the dice, knowing full well he's going to be exposed. And uh, you know, so, and he, of course he beats him with a lucky six. So, you know, he just rolls, doesn't even bother looking. He just rolls the dice and just looks. You know, and, and it's like it's really quite funny. He really embarrasses Kamal Khan in this scene. I mean, Kamal Khan has every reason to want to kill him. Well, point. and he like, says, enjoy, enjoy your money. While, you know, yeah, like, spend uh, the money <laughs> get quickly. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's a line that comes from the Moonraker novel with Hugo Drax uh, yeah. and the bridge, the bridge, who's cheating at bridge. Yeah, that. so they do they too tend to sample elements from Bond books. Every now and then, a line is thrown in into a film, all sorts of odd ways, which tries to show the link still back to the original source material in, in that sense. Um, so, yeah, look, there's, there's, there is a lot about this this film, which I, I like. There's there's lots of things which obviously don't um, work. Look, I have to say, with Bond, Bond women, Christina Weyburn is probably my favourite Bond girl. Really? Yes, I, I think she's, she's fabulous. I mean, I think she is one of the best Bond girls. I think she looks, she is perfect. Weyburn is... Very, very appealing in this film. Very, very strong. And fortunately, she doesn't get killed off, which happens often with, yeah. with Bond girls. And fortunately, they kept her gut. Uh, in we don't film. really have uh, a lot of collateral damage in this film, if you think about mm. it, because you know normally you would expect that character to be killed off. Yeah. Um, VJ, of course, is killed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he is the movie's gruesome, gruesome sacrificial death. lamb. Yeah, and it's yeah. a very, it's very sad. And then Q comes and finds him, and he's yeah, like, yeah. "He was alive when I found him." Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's true, and that's that's. Uh, I, I think one of the Q, Q's given a little bit more to do in this film than in the than in. Well, uh, he had a little yeah. bit to do in Free Eyes Only, yeah. but often he's just in the earlier films in particular. He's just given very little to. Yeah, they play to him on this one, particularly where he's he's. I mean, there are some funny scenes. Uh, it's always I always find it funny with uh, the Bond films that uh, Bond is 007 and there are other OO you know clearly um, agents elsewhere but it seems to be where Bond is that's where you'll find Q and that's where you find the laboratories and it happens to be in India so Q happens to be in India doing he all has the this moving laboratory wherever Bond <laughs> yeah, goes. it seems to be and, and he's not even in well the movie is not it, it's shot in a place called Udaipur yeah. are you familiar where that is in no, relation to anywhere I'm, I'm not really and although it jumps so, to Delhi as well it, it does seem to be over the place in yeah, that sense so you're like what does, does Q have I mean, like, and also the VJ, the VJ and Sadruddin just happen to have their headquarters in that city as well. Well, well why, why is why is uh, in in an independent country has uh, has the British service got its own base in India? Yeah. What's that saying? It's almost colonial. Well, I mean, that's, almost, that's, it, that's part yeah. of the the fantasy and the, the magic of Bond. Well, that, why could why shouldn't they have it? Well, like, yeah, well, indeed, this this is created to love. But there were some good lines in that one. You know, where he's try again. You have these ridiculous things where he's um. He, he, he goes in there and the guy is climbing up a, a sort of the uh, rope ladder, yeah, ladder which yeah. slaps his says, trouble keeping it up, Q. You know, you, you jokes on a number of jokes. And again, with the pen, the, the pen which with the uh, acid, he goes, oh, good for poison pen. And do you letters. know where that line actually comes from? Go it's on. It's not the first time that line's been used. Go on. Casino Royale? Ah. I was watching today, just, just happened to be watching, there's a scene, uh, the Q scene in Casino Royale. <laughs> We're talking about the comedy 1967 Casino Royale with Jeffrey Bort. Jeffrey Bolden, if that's his name, and he's he's got Jeffrey Bolden. Oh, like, he played Cat Weasel, and also the scare the Scarecrow um, um, Man or whatever or in Wurzel Gummidge. Yes, so yeah, he, he was right. he was yeah. That's in that right. sense, Jeffrey Bolden was very very popular actor of his day. So his number two is so Peter Sellers uh, is picking up a pen and he's about to start writing. He's like, oh, don't write with that because <laughs> because poisonous gas will come out. And and Peter Sellers is like. 
it's all right for a poison pen letter. Yeah. And then they, of course, they there's another, and I was, and I think we, I was speaking to you about this the other day, but the climax or the the penultimate climax of the scene when the air balloon comes in mm. and you have octopuses, you know, circus um, cults, uh, whatever we want to call them, and they're all they're on the trapeze and they're like coming in from all angles. Like for me, that 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 harkens back a little bit to Casino Royale, the, the climactic scene in the casino. You're talking I don't about know. Casino Royale, nineteen sixty-seven. Nineteen sixty-seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, and again, I, I mean, I've got lots of thoughts about that film, which are not particularly positive. But, but, but why but, is Q? Why is Q there? I mean, why, why yeah. have they come in on the hot air balloon? Again, I think. Again, if I look at this as being intended to be Roger Moore's swan song, then it's sort of like having his friends around. They, they just threw him. everything. I, I think they did. I think that's what they were doing. They were almost saying, "This is his his farewell. Let's bring in uh, Q towards the end. Let's make." It a bit of a fun film, a fun, you know. I think Roger Moore said, Look, "I'll do it, I'll do it, but I'll, I'll, it's got to be fun. I don't, I don't want to make a, a serious movie. I want it to be fun, particularly after For Your Eyes Only, which in the main is a more serious film. It's got, it's got ridiculous elements at both ends of, of, of that film, but nonetheless, well, so this is much more about him being relaxed, being chilled, being um, able to enjoy what he was doing in his in his film. So I think there's lots of." Um, yeah, positive. One other point I'll say, which is separate to this, I do remember it was released in June 1983. And at the time, it was a general election. Uh, 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 it was just before it was released. I think they had the um, the um, opening just before the general election. But and this was coming not so long after the Falklands War. Either. It was indeed. Yeah. And this was when Thatcher won her big victory at the time. And Roger Moore, I always remember this, was on the front page of the... Um, of the Evening Standard, and it had Roger Moore being asked, and who will James Bond be voting for? And he said, Conservative, of course, which I remember thinking that's a pretty dodgy thing to, for, for an actor to align himself with a political party in that sense. Now, of course, if Sean Connery had been asked, he would have been saying SNP because Sean Connery was very much into the SNP. Was he so, already at that time? Yeah, yeah, he was always, yeah, he's always been very much a Scottish nationalist in all sorts of ways before they even had... They, they had, SNP. interestingly, in the end of For Your Eyes Only, they had uh, you know, poked fun at uh, Margaret Thatcher and Dennis Thatcher. That's and the true. That's scene true. Of Your Eyes. I think it's the only time they actually ever have a Yeah, and that, well, we discussed that in due course when we come to For Your Eyes Only, of, of course. You're which right. is, which is strange. I should, I should add that it's strange because the tone of that film is so. It's the most serious, probably yeah. the most serious of Roger Moore's yeah. films. So why did they then add that element well, of humour? Whether it works or not, we will cover. Well, well, it. Well, we'll come to that in, in, when so we. So what, what what impact do you think it had I, based well, on the election? Well, well, I don't think it had. Um, whether it had any impact or not, I suspect it was negligible. I think it was more for the point as I would have, uh, you know, thought that that was inappropriate for a, an actor who was asked as James Bond to do. I think Cobby Broly, uh, Broccoli would have been not impressed for James Bond sort of being aligned in any way politically. He should, he should be rising above it. But it the was Bond, the Bond, um, you know, what Cobby Broccoli really wanted uh, from these films is he, he, they brought a degree of neutrality. They didn't mm. want to be making a too much of a political commentary or even a commentary on the Soviet Union versus the West. Yeah. This film actually, it, it, it's unusual in that it does, it does feature mm. a rogue KGB, mm. KGB general. And that is the main part, but it's, it's really like played over the top and made very clear that this is a rogue. Mm. Um, this is a rogue general. And in fact, Walter Gottel is, I think this is one of Walter Gottel's more prominent roles mm. as um, general Gogol. Mm. He's actually like really like quite, quite hell bent on stopping, mm. stopping this, uh, you know, this very hawkish character of Orlov. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just think it was, look, we know Roger Moore's performance was the most, you know, 
conservative leaning of of the James Bond figures. There's no doubt about that, and I think that's that's we accept it as as he as he is. And I say he played the performance as Roger Moore playing mm. interpretation of James Bond, not Ian Fleming. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't playing Ian Fleming's role. He's playing very much how he wanted to make the role, and they they played it. And look, it works in all sorts of ways. But uh, it's always a, a questionable thing, you know. And look, he was playing up. He was obviously using himself, saying when he's voting conservative, as in I'm voting conservative. But the thing is, I just that always struck me at the time. I always thought it was a pretty bad thing to have done because I thought many people do not vote conservative, and therefore you're actually. Um, you know, upsetting people who don't who don't know, and really, is that the right thing for for actors to do? Because I, I think back to that equally when um, George Lazenby went to the um, opening of um, for your, uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, and he, he and he turned up with long hair and a beard, and that was really Broccoli was very angry with him because he thought you have to have the you have to look like Bond. We don't want you you know going off message in that way. But I suppose look on the issue with Roger Moore. Roger Moore was basically they wanted Roger Moore more more than what he wanted them in many ways. I mean, it was a two way thing, and it clearly kept going back to him. So I felt he felt he could say what he liked because hey, he's Roger Moore, and suppose he did. So in that sense, but look, all in all, I I rate this as one of the best Bond films of the Roger Moore era, even one of the best Bond films as a whole. It's certainly in the higher higher tier rather than lower tier for me. Um. You know, it would certainly be uh, out of five stars. I'd definitely give it at least four. At least four, uh, I'd mm-hmm. give it up there. Possibly, possibly a bit more than that. I mean, it's certainly. So you give it your license to thrill. It's certainly a license to thrill. I think it's it's a thumbs up rather than a thumbs down. Rather than a license revoked. It's a license, it's, to, thrill. It's a license to thrill. I like it. I like it. Yeah, yeah it's a li- It's certainly a license to thrill, uh, and um, I I think it was. If he would have gone out on this one, would have been his sixth Bond film. I, I think this would have been uh, a great one to go out on. As we know, he I did. Think the title call. song really implies that this is the swap. The That's swan what I said. Yeah, yeah. And all time on all time high. Now, what do you think of the title song? Because I, I, it's not one of my favourites. I'm not going to mm. lie. And I think there are better, better like songs in that vein, like um, the Spy Who Loved. Nobody does it better. It's a far superior song well, to this. I don't know. You see, I, I really don't know. I like this one. I actually think it's one, uh, for me, it's one of the better ones. Okay. It's not my favorite. You know, again, it's really difficult because when there are some really good tracks, trying to say what is your favorite is difficult because I'm not sure. I, there's a few that I like on my favorite. This would be in my list of favorite tracks. And I do I like it better? You know, n- n- nobody does it, it better. It's certainly seen by many as being one of the top Bond mm-hmm. themes. But I don't know. I, I I might like this one better actually. Really? Yeah, I do. I do. I like it. I think it. Again, I look at it I think in the it's context used of very film. well as an instrumental as well throughout the score. The score, as you mentioned earlier, of John Barry, this is one of his good, really good scores. It's got some really good incidental music. It really go goes very well. It's, it it matches the action, and yeah. also John Barry doesn't let himself get distracted by the exotic locale. So no. he made a conscious decision not to use like a, a sitar. sitar. Yeah, that's sitar, right. That's instance. right. That's right. That's and the only point we actually hear any um, incidental, like local music, is the, the snake, is the, the snake yeah. They were concerned. I've seen the documentary, and they used the um, the snakes, and they were really concerned. And uh, VJ Armitage said about the uh, snakes. He said that you know 
how has he had his venom taken? I said, well, well, most of it. They have to let a bit in there, otherwise he'd be dead. <laughs> and his character doesn't like snakes either. <laughs> no, so no, no, no. So, so it was really uncomfortable. But he just lets the snake go off on its own. It yeah, goes like, yeah, yeah. 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 And there was some, there was some government on this one. But look, uh, again, all in all, I, I think it's a great film. I like it. It's one of my favourites. I'm glad this was the one we began with um, because it's actually, um, I, I, you know, I think it's a really good. Anybody who has not watched it or hasn't watched it for a long time. Um, should really give it a watch and watch it for what it is don't try and impose what you'd like it to be or think it should be i think too much of what these films are you're encouraged to say what you should but you go this is why i actually have a concern with critics as a whole and particularly watching what critics say before the film is that you've seen it for yourself they're almost poisoning you with their, their own perspective of how awful it is or how what is or what it should be or what it shouldn't be now of course we could be guilty of that ourselves in this podcast however this is for aficionados but certainly um i think you should go into it and watch it on its on its own you know uh, on its own way you know don't don't try and impose upon it what um, the Bond series has been up to now, what it's been... Look at it as a, 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 as a film, because comparison's always dangerous. The, the most ways. obvious comparison, though, when it comes to this film would be watching it alongside the, the competing film of the time, which was Never Say Never Again. Maybe that's, what we should, maybe that's what we should watch next. I think that might um, be, that might, might, might be because that was the same year. That was about four months later. And everyone, you see, this was what it was... They rushed to get... They wanted this one out before Never Say Never Again. Because they were concerned, they were really concerned about it. It was a bit. I remember at the time, they they knew it was in production, and they and they felt they really had to, you know, perform on this one, right? They felt like that was a real threat to the franchise. They thought this could, you know, could suffer uh, uh, in uh, with Never Say Never Again. As it was, it did. This one outperformed Never Say Never Again, um, and this I, I think it. But that's not. That's not a critique on Never Say Never Again being a good film or not. It no. just happens to be this film came out first. It had all the marketing budget behind it. It had well, know, yeah. a, a much longer... You know, they, this was the, I think, the 12th or the 13th. 13th, I think it was the 13th movie. Yes, yeah. I, it's true. I, my point is, again, here we are looking at it 38 years after it came out. I remember at the time um, what was being said, at that, you know, and very much, uh, you know... Um, People were, they, the, the, there were concerns about the um, the forthcoming Sean Connery coming back because he was, you know, he was seriously, you know, seen as a very significant actor in his post Bond times. He 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 was a star quality. Now, of course, Roger Moore was star quality, but of course, this was the first time you had uh, Sean Connery in a in a competing movie to the official uh, Bond movies, you know, and this what that mm. was not an official Bond in that way, and it was two Bonds in the same year, in the same year, which again, as we said earlier, is why Sean uh, Roger Moore was enticed back into the role very much, and he didn't go with you know James Brolin. And to be honest, if it wasn't for Sean Connery, we may have had James Brolin in that film. It might have changed the whole destiny of the Bond films as mm. we know it, mm. right? So if Sean Connery, you know, the very fact did have an impact upon Broccoli onto where he went next with the films and therefore kept uh, more on. And that, again, set, set the scene for what we had subsequently. Yeah. It's interesting is that they're, they're, these films are quite different. Extremely. I, my challenge with Never Seen Ever Again, uh, I don't I don't hate it. I, I think you I think you probably dislike it more than I do. But, but it's been a while ago I've seen it. That's what, this is the, the thing. Go on. It's, it doesn't know whether or not it's taking itself seriously. Whereas Octopussy, 
you know, Roger Moore is playing the character with a raised eyebrow. It's mm. they're, they're happy to, to, to poke a little bit fun of themselves. Now, there are elements of comedy, never seen it, never again, but it sort of goes from being very serious to being. Uh, and I think Sean Connery's performance in the film is it's it's a little bit confused because he he's at some points he's playing it straight at some points he's playing it also with a raised eyebrow if we can use that mm-hmm. so and my bigger the bigger problem never saying there again is it it's it can it has to go off what's come before fundable mm. fundable the book fundable the the film so it, if you don't like fundable like i'm not a huge fan of fundable no, no, no. so there's not really it doesn't leave much wriggle room for enjoyment if you don't happen to have liked fundable yeah, absolutely true although his performance in 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 never say never again is is a, is a bit different from it is in in fundable you know um Sean Connery's playing it in a different way. He's playing it more... For, I think he plays it more for laughs in that sense. I also hasten to add that he never say never again. He looks down sight fitter than he, than he looked in, in, in Diamonds Are Forever. You know, he, he's lost a few pounds. He looks smoother and he's 12 years older, but looks uh, looks much in, in better shape. Who looks older, though? Who, who uh, looks better? A, Roger Moore in Octopussy that's, that's or... A good, that's a good... Sean Connery That's in. a good question. That is a good question. Um, Sean Connery ha- is more believable in terms of his physicality. Like he looks trimmer. Okay, you know you have this whole. You know, they're sort of poking the fun of the fact he's going to the health farm and has to get in shape and whatnot. But he does look. He he does look like he looks. He looks pretty good. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think look, I said to you. I think Roger Moore uh, was beginning to look older. And they, again, like I said they compensated. We said on this film, um, but he certainly looks significantly older than he did in. Uh, Moonraker, as an example, which was four years previous to that one, right? Uh, he looked certainly from for your eyes only onwards. He began to look a lot more chubbier. You know, I think he was chubbier in that sense. He looked less believable as the role as it was built up to that and to that stage. You know, I think up to Moonraker, he was trim. He was generally considered to be, and it's interesting to say Moonraker was the last of the d- deals that he did. After that, he felt like he let himself go, and they wanted him back. He said, "Well, I'll take yeah. it, but I'm not going on a diet." Almost, it's almost like I'm going to be who I am now. You know, in that sense, and um, so that that may be very much very much a case. But um, yeah, it's uh, my only reason of suggesting as, as that as the next film only because it was, it was the same year in that way. But we don't have to. We can do whatever we like. So I, I had an idea, mm. and. Um... I mean, I haven't really given my, my final recap on this film, so I'll give it quickly. Yeah, uh, I, I think this is a solid film. I I know you were not very happy with me saying last time that I see this as a mid, you know, mid top uh, mid second tier, you know, mid table film. Mm. I, I'd like to sort of say that this sits immediately outside my top ten. Mm. If I were to really, and that's mainly because I I tend to be a much bigger fan of the kind of more. Fleming-esque mm. films that have that kind of realism to them. Films like From Russia With Love, Doctor No, uh, okay, On Her, On Her Majesty's Secret Service for a little kind of, a, you know, for d- different reasons. And then you've got Casino Royale with Daniel Craig uh, so, and then License to Kill. So this movie would sit probably like bang in 10th or 11th, 10th or 11th position. Yeah. But that doesn't make, but, but I... So how many stars out of five would you give it? Ooh, you've given it four out of five. Yeah. Because I put it on a higher rating to you, I certainly would not put it down level yeah. twelve. To me, yeah. it's it's in the top four or five. It's in that rating for me. It's it's that's yeah. where I hold it. You know, I certainly would not have it down at in eleven twelve. So so on that basis, if if you're going to rate so it, on a what Tuesday, movies do you? Yeah, don't give us a definitive list, but what would you say is better than? Then, just, just uh, as a benchmark. Well, well, Goldfinger definitely. Doctor No, I think is a more. Well, Doctor No is, a, you know. And you're a big fan of Diamonds Are Forever, I believe. I, so. I am, but not. I think Diamonds Are Forever is lower down than this. You think it's lower than this? Mm. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, for sure. Um, 
Yeah, again, look, we're, we're going to work through the films as we do this podcast. Yeah. And so, uh, so any I, rankings we're giving now are not, anyway, definitive, are not anyway. definitive at all. But look, I can tell you it's, it's up there high. Um, again, my, my, my top film probably is, unless I reevaluate when we watch it, Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I may reevaluate that one in light of things. It really depends. Again, look, I agree. If you're, if you're looking for Fleming-esque type films, if that's your, 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 your thing, then clearly you're going to rate the more serious type films. And I can see why Licence to Kill will be up there, which I think is a, is a good film. I also give that four stars, actually, as a film. But it's a very different... Can you compare... I mean, this is, I have this with, with record albums, the same things. Oh, record albums, I don't call them record albums anymore, CDs or, D, or D, you know, this, is, this is, shows my age. But, um, you know, although they've come back in again, vinyl, of course. But no, I mean, I always find it interesting when you read um, reviews of albums and so forth and they give bands that you like, you know, uh, oh, we'll give it three stars, but they give some band which you think is absolute rubbish. They give it five. I think, how can you compare? They're not in the same 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 category. How do you compare them? Well, the issue as is I look at it is you're comparing it amongst itself, amongst its own genre, on its own. So, so my issue is, can you compare, can you seriously compare Roger Moore era Bonds with other era, you know, can you compare against the, I'm not sure, because they're not, they're not planning to do the same, they're not doing the same thing. I don't think you can put the likes of Octopussy in the same category as Dr. No. I think there's such a different type of film, yeah. or License to Kill. License to Kill probably fits better into some of those earlier films in some ways, but then again, you know, I don't, I, you know, I know Timothy Dalton's one of your favourite. I, I, I think he hasn't got the charisma of Roger Moore or yeah, Sean Connery. So, yeah. so it's how you play it and how do you class it. But look, on its own way, if I was ranking the Roger Moore films, uh, do you, do you I'd think... put it very high up there. It might be second to Live and Let Die, maybe. You think that you would rank this above Spy Who Love Me even? I probably will. And I, again, we, we come to Spy Love yeah. when we watch that one. Um, we, we, we'll see. But again, all I'm saying to you is I think it's a four st- at least a four-star yeah. film. And again, whether it gets another half or whatever will depend very much on how some of the other films, when we see them again or mm. watch them, how we do it. I know from some, you know already in recent months, having looked at some of the films, I've reappraised some of my thinking of those films, and we will come to that when we again when we do this. So I think uh, the quite- a, lot, a lot of this is it, it sort of comes down to what you're in the mood to watching. Now you mentioned record albums. Now you're not always we're not like I, I like country music, I like film soundtracks, and you know someone might like you know, someone someone might really like classical music or or pop music. But or, it depends what you're hard rock like I do. Yeah, I, like, you know, <laughs> so, sometimes when I'm going for a drive, I have two playlists. I have country music playlist and I have James Bond playlist. If I'm really pumped up and excited about watching a James Bond film, then obviously I'll be listening to my James Bond playlist. But, you know, sometimes if I just want to chill out, kick back, I'll listen to country music. So this octopusy for me is, if I just want to have fun, I don't want something that's too ridiculous. Mm. I want something that's, you know, nice midpoint octopuses. It's a great, it's a great go-to mm. film for that. Um, if I were to give it a rating, and I'm being very... <sighs> I, 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 I'm going to be quite, quite blunt. I would give this a three and a half out of five. Okay. Well, no, not too far away from me. But not too be... far from you, but I, I, I think, I just think that bearing in mind there's probably a good 10, at least 10 films I think are better than this. I have to leave some well, room. Yeah, well, I see. Not all of those if, are going to be five-star ratings. Again, again, if you're giving that three and a half, you're going to have difficulty. I'd like to know what the ratings of those other films are going to be. And my issue is, to me, this is a, a way above a number of films, quite a number of films. And we're, again, as we progress through our podcast in, in weeks to come, you know, we will start to bring in our rankings. I'm going to give films. a rationale though why I rate it three and a half and not four or higher. Okay. There is there is a degree of conservatism to this film, and the producers are playing it safe. They're not. They haven't reinvented the wheel. So, I, I just 
I just, it's not edgy. It's yeah, not edgy. I just... It, it, it's pleasing to the eye. It's fun to watch. Uh, it, it doesn't offend. Well, uh, you know, it doesn't offend, at least on the whole. And the music's, the musical score is solid. All the performances, the leading ladies, it, the villains in particular... Mm. You know, those are all five star it's a, performances. It's, it's just the plot. Yeah, I agree. The, I agree. It, there is a, there is a, there is a, there is a tiredness to it. Now that it still supersedes, uh, it supersedes Fiora's Only, View to a mm. Kill, uh, Never Say Never Again. It's contemporaries. Yeah. It's still the better of all those films. I think that's true, and I understand. And by the way, I just want to throw into the point my point before I didn't want to forget, and that is at the end of this movie. It says what the next film is. And what does it say in the next film it is? It says James Bond will return in From A View To A Kill. Exactly. And of course, the next film was called... View To A Kill. A View With, To A Kill. Without the From in it, which was interesting. Because, of course, the story is called From A View To A Kill. And they cut the From out and just called it A View To A Kill. But I thought it was interesting. I think when we get to talking about View To A Kill, we're going to have even more problems with the title of that film than we could possibly have with Octopussy. Yeah. It's like... At what point? You know, when, <laughs> Where's when, the when, view? <laughs> when does when octopusy is mentioned quite frequently throughout this film? Like the word octopusy, <laughs> that's my little octopusy, the tattoo, and like, and you know, the character's name is octopusy. Yeah. But when does a view to a kill get mentioned in the view to a kill? I know, I know. It's a good, it's a good question because I don't know. It's They're a... out in the airship overlooking San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, mm. and um, Mayday turns to Christopher Walken's character Zorin, and he says, she, she says, "What a view," and he responds. To a kill. Yeah, yeah. I did. Uh, it cracks it's, me up. It's just so contrived. Yeah, well, it's contrived. Well, that's my <laughs> point. Like, how like, how well, would they... Well, Adrian, well, let's save that till till we come yeah. to that one. So well, what's going to be the next film? Well, again, it's up to you. What I, do you I like I think to, it's, I, got, it's got to be a contrast. It's got to be a more serious I, film. I, like. I, I um, would like to put it to you this way. Uh, I think how, the way we should do this series, and we're going to be... For the listeners, we're going to be jumping back and forth, back and forth. A as, we bit. Do, as we always now, do. We've in, got in, seven in. films by Roger Moore, hmm. seven films for Sean Connery. For all intents and purposes, we're going to count. I think we're going to count Never Say Never Again. Mm. I don't think we should go to that film next. I think it's just, I don't know, it's just too predictable. <laughs> it might be. Um, and then we've got four, four, well, five films potentially by Daniel Craig by the mm. time we get to that, his, his next film. Then we've got four for Pierce Brosnan, two for, Le- two for Dalton, one for. Uh, our friend Lazenby, and then one, you know, if we do Casino Royale, which mm. I think we should as well. Yeah. So I think we should do a cycle where the next film is going to be Connery, the one after that will be Craig or Bros, probably Craig, then mm. Brosnan, and then we're doing a continuous eventually, cycle. Eventually, till we get to and the And we ones. may then discuss other films to make up for the lack of, the lack of number of films for poor, poor, uh, Tim- poor, poor Timothy Dalton and of his own choosing, Of their own choosing, I hasten to on both of their cousins. <laughs> well, we'll see. Well, let's, let's so we're going to mix it up a bit. I think we should run in a cycle. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't, don't dispute that. So, so we're going to do a, co- a Connery film. I agreed we do a Connery film. I know that Goldfinger is one of your favourites. Mm. I say maybe we should hold fire on doing Goldfinger yet because I think it's... So what should we do? From Russia With Love? I think From Russia With Love. Yeah. And I, I say I, this purely yeah. out of... I'm biased because I just finished reading the book. It's one of my favourite books. Um, I don't think we should do Doctor No because it's... Yeah. I watched that. I watched that a little while back, uh, and I did rate it very highly. But I'm, I haven't seen From Russia with Love for quite a while, so let's do it. Yeah, we're I'm gonna do From it. Russia with Love. From Russia with Love, it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah we agree. I'm, I'm certainly up for that one. Okay, great. Um, I should hasten to add also that we do have. Uh, if any, if, if any of our listeners have any feedback, we do have a an email address. If you want to get in touch with your thoughts, comments. Um, you know, if you want to, you know, give us your critiques on this podcast. The email address is spoken, not stirred, at outlook.com, I believe. Um, I will have to double check that. <laughs> spoken, not stirred, all one word, 
spoken not stirred at outlook.com send in mm. your comments and uh, we will be happy to address them in future episodes indeed my name is harrison i'm here with daniel and this is spoken not, not stirred, stirred a james bond podcast <laughs>